and including we are going as low as primary school children all the way up to universities. We see the youth as a very important constituency in our intellectual property outreach because we think it's the youth who are going to be responsible for small and medium-sized enterprises, etc. And so part of my mandate will be this outreach to youth and other stakeholders to make sure they all have buy-in into the intellectual property system. That was Edward Kwakwa, Assistant Director General at the World Intellectual Property Organization. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Thank you for joining me. This is the first episode of our third season. The second season did not go as planned, and I ended up recording very few episodes. That is something I really want to fix this season. To kickstart it, I'm honored to host Edward Kwakwa. We have been meaning to have this conversation for some time now, and I'm delighted we finally managed to sit down and talk. Edward has been has had a pretty international life, born in Ghana and then traveling to Canada and the US to study. He worked in the US law firm for some time and eventually made his way his way to Geneva. In Geneva, he was supposed to be here for one year but ended up staying for good. He has worked in many organizations in his professional experience, including the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the World Trade Organization. In our conversation, he explains the role of WIPO across and delves a bit into his new portfolio, which includes many global challenges such as climate change and global health. All in all, it was a fascinating and informative conversation that flew by. Please stick around. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I'm here with Edward Kwakwa, the Assistant Director General at WIPO. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for meeting with me this morning. <laughs> no, thank you for accepting my invitation. It's been long coming. <laughs> I know. At least we managed to do it before the end of the first month of the year. Yes. <laughs> thank you very much. So let's start at the beginning. You, you were born in, in Ghana. In Ghana, in Kumasi, in 1961. How can you tell me a bit about uh, life growing up in Ghana? Well, essentially, my father was a professor at the University of Ghana, and my mother was also working with the Ministry of Education. So we grew up in a family that gave a prime importance to education. And most of my life, my parents inculcated us to want to strive for the highest levels of education. I have four other siblings, and they've all also been through the same thing pretty much. So our life has been education, 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 apart from the fun stuff, of course. <laughs> that is what I was wondering, because uh, I saw that you have a really strong academic background, and I was wondering if that was something it came from you or from your family. I think part of it was from my father, but part of it was also my elder sister, who was the first achiever, as it were. She went on to do a doctorate at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. And while she was there, she said she was lonely. So she wanted one of us to come <laughs> join us. And that's the only reason I decided to leave Ghana 
applied to go to Queen's University where she was. And that was the beginning. So you, of, you were there at the same time? At the same time. She was finishing up her doctorate and I went and started a master's while she was there. Mm, great. And mm. how, how was, uh, like, how do you think that your parents, like, uh, kind of promoted this? Was it something that happened, like, all the time? What, did it happen during the dinner table? I think it happened at the dinner table, at the lunch table, at the <laughs> breakfast table. <laughs> In other words, all the time. But my father, who unfortunately is no longer with us, I'm he sorry. was more just setting example. So anything he did, he wanted us children to see he was doing it, and it, especially when it was educational materials. He wanted us to see the spirit of education he had within him. So he just lived by example, apart from, from time to time, reminding us we have to do <laughs> it. <laughs> This is a, a fine line that now, me being a parent, I, I wonder how do we do that with our own kids? You know, it's funny, even I, well, we have four kids. And without realizing it, I have given them one particular skill that I think they are realizing already. So what happened is in Ghana, we follow the British system. So they don't really show you how to debate in class. They even discourage you from talking in class. Everything is the professor, professor, professor. So when we had kids, I said to myself, I am going to encourage my kids to do much better than I did in class. Because I couldn't participate in class. I had been more or less prevented from being articulate in class. So with our kids, what we did was every Sunday over lunch, we would ask one of them to just do a presentation on wow. any impromptu speech. We would just give them any topic and they would do it in front of their other siblings. And they have now come to realize they can talk about anything at any time, anywhere. And now they keep thanking us for having made them go through what they didn't like when they were doing it. But they see it's given them a very important skill. There is a, an excellent tip. Thank you. I will take it. <laughs> Um, and you were talking about the differences in the British education system and the American, because I think the American, and correct me if I'm wrong, encourages this uh, more. It is part of the actual way of teaching. Exactly. Especially at institutions like, I think you went to Stanford. Yes. Yes. So they definitely encourage participation by the students more so than they do under the British system where it's more the lecturer or professor speaking to the students. In the US, the students, sometimes they even come, they put their foot on the table and I'm thinking, what's wrong with these students? <laughs> But apparently that's the freedom they have in the US. Yeah, actually that caught me by surprise <laughs> because me growing up in Mexico and going to school in Mexico, law school in Mexico, uh -huh. that's exactly what you said. You read the book, the teacher stands there, like write something in the blackboard, And he tells you the class, like, you don't really participate. Right. And at Stanford, like, the, the professor was, like, calling names, and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I don't know if I can prepare. I'm prepared for this. <laughs> no, so, but I'm sure you've, you are very glad you went to Stanford. And, I, yeah. I, I am, but, uh, and this is also something I, I want, well, before, before that, I, how did you get interested in the law? Uh, the law. I think what used to happen is, well, my father was not a lawyer, was not nor was my mother. So 
I ask myself, what made me interested in the law to begin with? My elder sister was actually an economist. I think what happened is I just seem to be, especially when you watch movies, every time it sounds like, oh, let me get myself a lawyer. <laughs> Everyone says, you need a lawyer. You have the right to remain silent. So I kept thinking, what is it about this lawyer business? <laughs> Later on, I came to realize in life, you really, really need to know something about the law. It doesn't matter if you are going to rent an apartment, if you are going to circumvent the law, you need to know the law itself. Yes. And of course, normally it's the lawyers who know the law the most. So I think this is what made me interested in the law. I also realized Law is an everyday part of our lives. It plays a part in our lives, whether or not you are a lawyer. The example is my wife. Anytime we have even the slightest of arguments, she says, okay, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know about this. And then I keep reminding her, what's this got to do with law? But that reinforces the perception you have an advantage when you are a lawyer. So I think all this Paid it, played into my psyche in deciding I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> my wife is a lawyer, so I, I, I'm at a disadvantage. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate you, or maybe fortunate you. <laughs> um, so, so then you, you went to law school in Ghana. So I went to law school in Ghana. In Ghana, we followed the British system. Okay. So it's law school straight out of high school unlike the US where you, you do a first law degree before you go to law school. And Ghana is also common law system? Ghana is also common law, hmm. yeah. So I did my first degree in Ghana, and the only thing that made me leave Ghana, <laughs> this was the time when we had Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlins. Unfortunately, he passed away. In fact, they buried him just a week ago. He, we, the students at the university had protested against military rule. Hmm. So to punish us, he made us all stay at home for one whole year. They closed down the university. And that's what made me decide, okay, it's time to go look for greener pastures outside Ghana. And I applied to go to Canada hmm. to join my sister. Yeah. So you, you didn't have any work experience in after? So in Ghana, for the one year we were staying at home, I actually worked with the State Insurance Corporation of Ghana. And that's the only work experience I have ever had in Ghana. I and I've always said my one regret in life is never having worked for my government. So, I mean, I'm age 59 now. I'm sure my government has no use for me. <laughs> But still, I'm hoping I will get to work for my government before long. I see. <laughs> And uh, after you went to Canada, you also eventually, I mean, I, I saw a bit uh, in your CV, you eventually ended up in the U.S. as well. Right. It's funny, the story that as to how I got to the U.S., At Queen's University, I had a professor called Venkata Raman. And when I told him I wanted to do a doctorate in law, he said, oh, Edward, if you want to do a doctorate, then there is only one university in the world that you should apply to. I said, sure, tell me. And then he said, it's Yale University. It's only later on I found out he went to Yale Thank University you. himself. <laughs> so that's the only reason he said Yale University. But as it were, Yale happens to be the one university that offered me the biggest scholarship. 
So in the end, there was no choice between Yale or Harvard or any of the other universities that gave me a, a admission. Yale offered the most scholarship. And that's why you And went. for me, that was <laughs> yes. the main reason to go to Yale. Actually, when, when I was applying also uh, for my LLM, I was a bit discouraged because it was, Yale was known by being for being academic. Right. And that was not my intention at the time. Okay. Although right now, I'm actually even considering it. Oh. But at the time, it was not something that I really was aspiring to. You know, it's funny. Me too, when I went to Yale, I kept saying, I'm going to be an academic. Hmm. But in the final year of my doctorate, I heard about these U.S. law firms that were coming to interview law students at Yale. I said, oh, what do they go do? And people said, oh, they go be an associate in a law firm. And if they like the practice, they become a partner. So I said, how much money do they offer? <laughs> and when I heard the amount of money involved, I said, well, of course I want some of that money too. <laughs> so I applied to a couple of firms at Yale who had come to Yale to interview. And that's the only reason I switched from immediately going to do academia. I went straight to a law firm right after my doctorate. And that had never been my plan. But I guess the money enticed me, so... Yes. But that is also quite interesting how sometimes your plans don't really work out, but in the end it's for the best. Exactly. I'm really glad I did it in the end, because ever since then, even when I have gone to teach anywhere, I realize the practical aspects of my work are more important to the students than the academic aspects. Yes. And the students seem to appreciate more someone with academic as well as practical. So I think having worked in the law firm is helping with the academic work as well. I see. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And um, so, so you work as an associate in the U.S.? I worked as, as an associate in the U.S. It was a California firm, but I was with their Washington, D.C. office. And I managed to do three whole years. I didn't years. think I would do even one year, but I did three years. And then I heard about this job offer in Geneva. So I applied and uh, it worked out well. So that's what brought me to Geneva. I took a one-year leave of absence from my law firm. You, you were planning on coming back? One, one year, I was supposed to go back to Washington. And we've been in Geneva for 27 years since, 26, 27. So one year turned into 27. <laughs> After three years of leave of absence from the law firm, they said, OK, Edward, we can't give you any more extensions. They said, even our own American citizens, we only give them one year leave of absence. We extended yours twice, and now it's three years. You either come back, or that's the end of the relationship. So I said, my wife at the time was very happy to continue to stay in Geneva. Geneva yeah. So I had to part company with the law firm. Yeah. Actually, that's pretty common. People who come for, I also came for one year and I've been here like 12 uh, years. Uh, <laughs> I bet you you'll get to 27 too. <laughs> yeah, but that, that, that's pretty funny. And what got you uh, to Geneva? Where, where were you working in Geneva? In fact, what happened was while I was in the law firm, I actually published my PhD dissertation. And the International Committee of the Red Cross here in Geneva gave me an award for that book. 
So while I was in the law firm, they paid for me to come to the award ceremony here in Geneva. And then I came with, at the time, she was my girlfriend. We subsequently became man and wife. We came for the ceremony, and while we were here, she kept saying, oh, Geneva, this looks like a good place to raise children. Mm. Of course, we didn't even know we would get married. <laughs> so the Red Cross brought me to Geneva. That was my first visit to Geneva. And three years later is when I heard about this offer of a job from a Geneva-based company. And that's when my wife said, oh, Edward, of course you are interested in Geneva. Remember, we went there three years ago and we kept saying, oh, this is a nice place to raise children. So I came back to Geneva. <laughs> well, but that uh, was uh, in human rights? Well, my dissertation was in humanitarian, humanitarian law. law. I dealt with the law of armed conflict. And at the time I was looking at wars involving the national liberation movements like the PLO, the Southwest Africa People's Organization and the African National Congress. So I was dealing with humanitarian law as it relates to armed conflict involving national liberation movements. But as you can see, I have since switched to intellectual property law, which has nothing to do with armed conflict. And even before intellectual property law, I was doing a bit of trade law at the WTO. Yes. And before then, I did refugee law. At least refugee law is a bit closer to humanitarian law. And, and he, uh, the WTO and then back at uh, WIPO. Yes. Well, WTO, what I was doing there, I was supposed to be helping developing countries with their dispute settlement under Article 27 of the Dispute Settlement Understanding. And then in WIPO, when I came here, yeah, I that's, was... that's like the uh, on technical uh, on technical assistance? Exactly. So 7.5? Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And then when I came to WIPO, I was originally in the office of the legal counsel. So what we were doing in WIPO was very, very legal. Even if it wasn't intellectual property as such, we were dealing with depository functions and things like that. So in that sense, my switch from WTO to WIPO was legal to legal, <laughs> yes, and there wasn't much difference, yeah. Actually, that's uh, when you were at the Office of the Legal Counsel is when I first, I don't think I met you, but we can, our paths kind of crossed. Okay. <laughs> and I was at the, doing the Wipolex project. Oh, oh, you went on Wipolex. Yeah, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, we used to have Wipolex under the Office of Legal Counsel. But now it's gone to another sector. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know these changes, but at the time, I think it was really valuable. And actually, I was doing some research recently on mm -hmm. the WIPO convention. Okay. And I came across uh, WIPOLEX, which was really useful. Okay. In fact, now that you mention, I seem to recall Mexico was one of the countries that used WIPOLEX the most. Uh, yeah. I actually... Part of my job was dealing with Mexico. Okay. <laughs> Mexican laws uh, okay. and everything. Very good. I hope I did a good job. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um, and, and then like your career had basically been here at, uh, at WIPO after that. So yes, I have been in WIPO since December 1996. And I never thought I would spend this much time in one organization. But now it's been 24 years. 
and uh, I have just been offered a contract for the next six years. So I know unless I do something stupid, I will be <laughs> here for six more years. Good. <laughs> and, and can you tell us about, uh, so now you're an assistant uh, director general? Yes, so now I am assistant director general in charge of global challenges and partnerships. And in that sector, we have uh, about, well, we are still discussing portfolio, but what I will be doing will be a continuation of looking after the intergovernmental committee that deals with traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, and genetic resources. And there we are trying to see how best we can come up with a legal regime that provides protection for traditional knowledge. That is one area. Another area I will be dealing with is global challenges such as public health, climate change, human rights, and food security. We are trying to see the interlinks between intellectual property on the one hand and all these global challenges, especially global health, for example, as you know, at the WTO, at the WHO, and here in WIPO, there are ongoing discussions about how the intellectual property system is interfacing with the COVID-19 in particular. And that is one big area we will be dealing with. We will also be dealing with just what WTO calls enforcement. But at WIPO, our member states constantly remind us we don't have an enforcement mandate. Mm -hmm. So in WIPO, we call it building respect for intellectual property. And that area will be under my portfolio as global challenges and partnerships. We are also going to be responsible for the director general has decided we have to do outreach to important stakeholders. And one of those stakeholders is the youth. And of course, Rodolfo, you qualify as youth. Yeah. So we will be doing more <laughs> outreach to you. And including we are going as low as primary school children all the way up to universities. We see the youth as a very important constituency in our intellectual property outreach because we think it's the youth who are going to be responsible for small and medium-sized enterprises, etc. And so part of my mandate will be this outreach to youth and other stakeholders to make sure they all have buy-in into the intellectual property system. That's a pretty big uh, portfolio. Yes. So <laughs> let me ask you a couple of questions on it. Sure. Uh, traditional knowledge has mm -hmm. been something that has been discussed for many years. In fact, they started discussions in 2000. Yes. Although in terms of actual negotiation for a treaty, they only started in 2010. So actual negotiations have been 10 years now, but actual discussions on how to protect traditional knowledge have taken place over 20 years in Waipo now. And uh, actually some of these discussions also take some form of it at the WTO. Uh, right. I, I've been involved in discussions in the TRIPS committee, right. and this is what I, TRIPS council, sorry, mm -hmm. and this is what, how I, I wanted to ask you how do you see the relationships between organizations here in Geneva? It's, it's a strange relationship. I mean, there is clearly a lot of interdependence, but then the member states 
make it sound like we work in silos. So what has happened is, or at least what I've seen, first of all, we had WIPO. Everyone knows WIPO was the sole organization that was responsible for intellectual property. And then WTO, or GATT at the time, starts what they call the Uruguay Round negotiations from 1986 all the way to 1993. They signed the agreement in 1994. And as you know, during those negotiations, the developed countries especially decided, okay, now let's not just deal with goods. We also think intellectual property is directly related to trading in goods. We also think services are directly related. So now WTO, the new organization that started in 1995, is going to be responsible not just for goods, but also for trade-related aspects of intellectual property and then services. So when you ask how do I see the relationship, clearly there are some WIPO member states who took the impression, who took the position, wait a minute, but it's WIPO that deals with intellectual property. Why is WTO now doubling in intellectual property? In addition to that, the TRIPS agreement, which is administered by WTO, is now clearly much, much better known than WIPO's Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property or the Berne Convention on the Protection of Literary and Artistic Works, although those two conventions have been around more than a hundred years. So I think there is a lot more interest in WTO's intellectual property work, probably because they have the enforcement mechanism and they have had landmark cases such as the tobacco plane packaging case, cases dealing with compulsory licensing, cases that get a lot of publicity. So I think by default, a lot of people say, let's go to the WTO, let's go to the WTO, let's go to the WTO. And others say, why do you want to deal with WIPO? They don't even have enforcement. They have all these IP treaties, but there is no bite, no enforcement. So now when you ask about traditional knowledge, it turns out now the developing countries have also looked at what happened in the past. They realize they have the world's predominant in terms of biodiversity, in terms of traditional knowledge. And now the developing countries have suddenly realized, oh, in the same sense in which the developed countries made us add intellectual property to the WTO system, let's now also add traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions and genetic resources to the same WTO system. And I think part of the reason they want to do this, they see WTO being able to enforce their traditional knowledge if it's protected. Whereas they realize if it's WIPO that comes up with a treaty on this area, it will lack the kind of protection that they prefer to have. So I think there is some sort of symbiotic relationship between WIPO on the one hand and WTO but then depending on which country you are talking to, they will say, let's go to WIPO, or they will say, let's go to WTO, on the same subject matter. Yes. So. <laughs> it's a, a bit complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this also ties to another question that I had. 
regarding the portfolio that you will be dealing with. Right. So you're also talking about uh, climate change, for example, which yes. is also being dealt with across many organizations. Exactly. So what uh, what would be what do you see as WIPO's role within the work of this organization so that there's no overlap and there's uh, productive results? Right. So in WIPO, first of all, what we make clear is that we're only dealing with any subject matter as it relates to intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So in the climate change area, for example, what WIPO will be doing, we have something we call WIPO Green. Mm -hmm. It's a public-private partnership And what we will be doing is using it as a marketplace to introduce those who have needs for certain types of technology to those who have that type of technology. So someone who needs a certain type of environmentally friendly technology can approach someone who provides that environmentally friendly technology. And it's like a marketplace. And then we set them up as a partnership and they go ahead and they do something. The idea being we are using the intellectual property system to try and enhance the technologies, to try and at the same time enhance the climate that we want to change, the type of change we want to do. We are using the IP system as a conduit through which we can improve the environment. So that is why we're using IP for the enhancement of climate change. We have the same in the area of global health. Yeah. We have a public-private partnership we call WIPO Research. And there what happens is eight of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, and this is Johnson and Johnson, Novartis, uh, Pfizer, Pfizer that's come up with the first mm -hmm. <laughs> vaccine for the COVID-19. These eight companies have pledged, they pay a certain amount of money to the administrator. The administrator is an NGO based in California and they work with WIPO. They use the money paid by these pharmaceutical companies to try and get researchers based in developing countries, researchers who are working on neglected tropical diseases, malaria, and tuberculosis. Clearly, diseases that don't have the world's attention. I mean, we've only had COVID for one year. And in one year, we have three vaccines already approved through regulatory action. And this tells you how much money has gone into COVID research. Yeah. Whereas when you talk about malaria, tuberculosis, and other neglected tropical diseases, The market is not there, and so the pharmaceutical companies don't spend that much money in research and development. So what WIPO Research is trying to do is, it's trying to say, we have these diseases, but they are not of interest to the international community. Let's use the intellectual property system to show we can actually improve access to medicine where these neglected tropical diseases are concerned. And that's what WIPO is going to be doing, is already doing, but will further enhance its activity in terms of showing how intellectual property can be used as a force for good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> regarding 
I, I want to hear your thoughts on... Uh, I'm more familiar with the work being done at the WTO, which is a member-driven organization. Right. And I guess that WIPO, to a certain extent, is also that way. But uh, one of the strengths that I see WIPO having over the WTO is that uh, WIPO also deals directly with... With the, uh, with the private sector on many matters, like for example on the PCT. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see this flexibility being an asset to, to WIPO over <coughs> other organizations, which I think is unique to WIPO? Yes, I think that's definitely unique to WIPO. It's also unique in the sense that, as you may know, WIPO gets 95% of its budget from this private sector. We get this money through the registration services we provide for patents, for trademarks, and for designs. We also get a bit of money from the Arbitration and Mediation Center. So again, there it's the private sector we are talking about, since it's dispute settlement between private parties, not between states. It gives WIPO a distinct advantage, first of all, we don't go through what the UN and even WTO. WTO doesn't have a financial crunch as such, but 100% of their budget they get from their members. Mm -hmm. WIPO only gets less than 5% of its budget from its member states. It gives WIPO the flexibility to, to be able to initiate projects, although at the end of the day, the member states approve our projects it gives WIPO greater flexibility in terms of everything, be it hiring mem staff members or deciding let's use this money for development cooperation. Incidentally, WIPO also does get some criticism, although we make a lot of money out of the private sector. Sometimes people raise the question, why are you making all this money out of the private sector, mostly developed countries, private sector? and channeling the money straight into cooperation for development, mostly developing countries' development. In other words, people complain this is taking money from developed countries and channeling it to developing countries. And our response is all we are doing is trying to facilitate developing countries' integration into the intellectual property system. So by providing them with technical assistance, with legal assistance, legislative advice in terms of their legislation, we only facilitate the developing countries integrating better into the intellectual property system, which in the end benefits not just the developing countries themselves, but also the developed countries. So by virtue of the fact that we earn all this money from the private sector, we are able to channel that money also into the public sectors of developing countries especially. And inherently, we improve the intellectual property system globally. So it gives WIPO more leeway in what it can do with the resources at its disposal. And incidentally, Private sector entities also get to have a say in the activities of WIPO. They do this through their governments or through direct channeling. We have direct relationships with the private sector, whether it's through memoranda of understanding or anything. So it's not that we are just getting the money from the private sector, but the private yeah. sector is also participating yeah. in what we are doing. 
Um, I, I am wondering, uh, taking this a bit uh, further, um, what are your thoughts? There seems uh, that right now we are in um, a moment in time where the intergovernmental organizations are being a bit, uh, I don't know, threatened. I, I guess that would be a word, I don't know if that's the appropriate mm -hmm. word, because uh, all the governments across the world, this is not unique to any government, seem to be looking inwards. And they are kind of restricting what intergovernmental organizations are even allowed to do. Yes. By resources or by other means. Uh, this is a big challenge for many organizations. How do you see this and how can we tackle it from here? Well, it's a challenge also for WIPO. People tend to assume because WIPO has its own sources of money, it's free to do what it wants to do. But we also have the same restrictions WTO and the UN have, whether or not we are making money from the private sector. So I think the problem is more a problem of confidence in the multilateral system. Yeah. And it just looks like we are at the lowest ebb in terms of multilateralism. In WIPO, we are probably better off than most other UN-based organizations. I mean, multilateralism isn't dead as such in WIPO. In 2012, we adopted a treaty in Beijing called the Beijing Treaty on Audiovisual Performances. In 2013, we adopted a treaty in Marrakesh called the Marrakesh VIP Treaty. It deals with visually impaired persons. And that's a key treaty because it gives access to copyrighted material to visually impaired persons. And in 2015, we adopted another treaty called the Geneva Act of the Geneva Act of the Hague huh? Agreement. Yeah. No, Geneva Act of the Lisbon Agreement. Yes. <laughs> Geneva Act of the Lisbon Agreement. So there we are talking about, and this is again of interest to WTO. That 2015 Geneva Act has now introduced the concept of geographical indications, which only existed in the TRIPS agreement. Now it also exists in a WIPO agreement. Secondly, that Geneva Act now says intergovernmental organizations such as the European Union or the African Regional Intellectual Property Organization can become members to the treaty. So now the WIPO system is going to be opened up to a broader constituency and we expect, you know WIPO does well with registration systems. Very soon we will have the type of multilateral registration system that had been anticipated when the TRIPS agreement was adopted and they said we are going to improve registries for wines and spirits etc. By virtue of this 2015 agreement, WIPO is soon going to have a much more effective registration system for wines and spirits through geographical indications than WTO has been able to achieve to date. And that may be the reason why some countries are not too excited about WIPO having adopted this Geneva Act. But I can say it's certainly going to be in the interest of developing countries. For example, Cambodia, just a couple of weeks ago, has registered the first geographical indication under this 2015 agreement, and it's called Kampot Pepe. 
Cambodia is going to end up making a lot of money out of this Kampot pepper. Not just by virtue of the geographical indication. They can also talk about the design aspects of it when they talk about the aesthetic qualities of the Kampot pepper, how it's branded. When it comes to branding, they are talking trademarks. So they can use three different types of intellectual property in one product to generate money for the country. And so that's the story about geographical indications and WIPO. But I was all, all saying all this in the context of multilateralism. Yes. So I make the point, although multilateralism is facing a lot of difficulties, at least in the last decade, we've had three treaties come out in WIPO. And this is more than most other organizations can say. Having said all that, we do have stumbling blocks in multilateralism. As you know, we've been trying to get a treaty in traditional knowledge area. We are trying to get a treaty in the design law area. And finally, we are trying to get a treaty on broadcasting. And all these are being a lot more difficult than we had assumed. I am just hoping member states will know that this disrespect for the multilateral system is not in their interest and that if we give multilateralism a chance it's the member states themselves who will be benefiting ultimately so i see light at the end of the tunnel for the multilateral system oh, it's good that you are optimistic <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. i i was I, i mean i we touched uh, upon briefly but i just want to because i every time i talk to colleagues they always uh, It comes and it come, It came up like recently. One of my colleagues uh, studied at the Graduate Institute, and mm -hmm. she said that Ah, yes, I, I took a class with Heather Quaqua, and that's something that I hear a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> how how have you been able to balance that? Uh, it hasn't been that easy. <laughs> In fact, last year I wasn't able to teach, but last year it's because. Should I say, I made the mistake of going to run for the position of Director General of WIPO, <laughs> and I decided it would be just much. too much campaigning, teaching, and working in WIPO at the same time. But I think I've been able to balance it because I see a benefit to being able to teach while I'm practicing full-time at WIPO. Well, first of all, it keeps me academically refreshed, what we do at the Graduate Institute in terms of teaching only keeps making me go back to read up on things and I need to be sure I am up to date with anything dealing with intellectual property that I teach in. So I take the teaching as an essential part of my work here in WIPO. Of course, I teach not on WIPO time, it's once a week every Thursday evening from 6.15 p.m. to 8 p.m. So in that sense, I don't use WIPO time to do the teaching. I do my reading up over the weekend and I do my preparations in the evenings when I need to. So I'm clearly not doing it on WIPO time, but at the same time, I think I'm doing it to the benefit of WIPO because it gives a lot more visibility to WIPO, to topics relating to what WIPO is doing. 
We do a lot on the arbitration and mediation centers, dispute settlement, for example. And there are a lot of MIDS students. MIDS is the Masters for International Dispute Settlement, who come from both the University of Geneva and the Graduate Institute. And they take the class because they know we will do something on dispute settlement at WIPO. So again, the teaching helps me also showcase WIPO as an international organization. And I think it's a mutually beneficial arrangement. It does take its toll on me. My family takes its toll because they allow me to spend my weekends and my spare time preparing to go teach. But it's a price they happily uh, <laughs> uh, have agreed to pay. So, <laughs> and, and I guess it's also a bit tied up, uh, tying it up with what you were saying about building respect for IP. Exactly. Exactly. It's clearly building respect for IP. We all talk about enforcement. We talk about things that show how we are building respect for the intellectual property system. And again, this only helps WIPO as an organization. That's the organization's mandate. So although it's been a bit stressful teaching once every week, I think it brings benefits not just to me as an individual but also to the graduate institute and to my organization and for as long as i have the energy and the director general will allow me to continue teaching i intend to continue doing that yeah. uh, uh, well this has been a really great conversation i really appreciate you having given me the time uh, is there anything that you want to say before we we conclude uh, Rodolfo, I just first of all want to thank you for, and let me start by apologizing for having taken so long to finally get a chance to do this. It's something I had wanted to do all along, but I really appreciate your patience and uh, I also appreciate your having done it in the first place. It's given me the opportunity to think a bit more about myself as an individual, what I'm doing, and also what we can foresee in the future. What I can say is that under the new administration, I think we have a lot of work cut out for us and I'm hoping I can assist the Director General and his seven other sector leads to showcase what we can do to project the image of WIPO and most importantly to show the importance of intellectual property in our daily lives. And I'm hoping I will get the opportunity to continue reacting, interacting with people like you who are doing such important podcasts <laughs> and who have an important coverage area. And certainly we hope you will be following. I know you follow WTO more than you follow WIPO, but I hope you will be paying a bit more attention to WIPO because stay tuned. We have a lot to say now on intellectual property. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> That was the first episode of our third season. We have great plans, so make sure to stay tuned. If you enjoyed the episode, please hit like, su subscribe, or review us. It really helps us. Thanks for listening.